0: Hello and welcome to Self-Studies, a podcast that explores how identity can inform a person's lived experiences and mental health. I'm Laura Duper, and today I'll be talking with Dr. Nuri Erkut about neuropsychology, disability and identity, and our culture's relationship to disability. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did.
1: This is Dr. Nuri Erkut kucuk jim I use the he and him pronouns, and I'm a clinical psychologist and a rehab neuropsychologist specializing on post-traumatic growth, predominantly within the setting of chronic disease and neurological disorders and disability.
0: Would you mind just telling us how you got to that particular area of focus and how you got to where you are now?
1: Of course. I am trained in a clinical psychology program with a focus in neuropsychology. So an understanding of how the brain and the heart kind of works together was a part of my training and, and focus from the earlier days. And um, after completing a PhD program, a doctoral program in, in clinical psychology, neuropsychology, which has a lot of, clinical components, a lot of research components, I then went into a subdomain, a subspecialty of rehab psychology. And the difference there was that my training in neuropsychology as a science, we are really into diagnostics and assessment. Um, For those who are familiar with neuropsychology, they might know that we use a lot of pen and paper and computer testing to understand what is the brain doing when it's performing different tasks and what that might say about its health. And and we like putting some labels on things and, and guide other diagnostic decisions with our findings. Um, that said, my interest, I realized over the years of being in this field, realized that my interests lie in also the interventional component, not just observe where people are, but I had this burning desire to also be part of their journey after we realize what's really going on with them. Um, I didn't really want to be just a harbinger of bad news <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and dole out these um, labels to people. But if I were telling somebody, you seem to have some memory problems, I wanted to learn how I could then help them with their memory problems. If they had attentional problems, I wanted to learn how to help with their attentional problems. Um, hence, I went to a specialty internship at NYU Langone Medical Center at Rusk Rehabilitation Center, and, um, and trained with experts in cognitive rehabilitation and remediation, and then followed uh, a postdoctoral study there as well. And then um, joined a research group at Kessler Foundation, um, which is a very active foundation in um, disability, traumatic brain injury, and spinal cord injury research in New Jersey, and also trained on the research aspects of cognitive rehab there. Um, And throughout this journey, I worked closely with a lot of neurologists, radiologists, partly because my focus was um, epilepsy and traumatic brain injury. Um, And I worked with a lot of individuals who experienced a lot of symptoms on a daily basis, but, but you couldn't really tell what was going on when you looked at them.
0: That's so fascinating. Thank you for sharing your journey to where you are now. Feels like you are fitting in such a a very specific but broadly reaching space where you're really getting to meet the needs of so many people who have maybe don't neatly fit into another category.
1: Yeah, it's a whole new identity that they get right after they their diagnosis.
0: Yeah, I wanted to start out this conversation since since you do see and specialize with people who are kind of inhabiting a new a new identity that after some in some cases some trauma or something that has intervened in their life and, and caused some neurological uh, damage or changes, could you just help us define what disability is and and how it is different from impairment or is it um, how how can we best use language in that area?
1: Of course. Psychology as a field, um, especially psychological science, does borrow a lot from medical science. But I think I, I'm proud to say that psychology uses a much broader definition of disability. So for our understanding, disability, especially using the environmental theory of disability, is, is a construct that is kind of built upon uh, with the individual and its environment. it's not something that happens in isolation and it is a result of the individual's performance um, in certain domains, it's where the individual is, and it's also a result of the failure of the environment in in meeting the individual and in meeting the person where they are. For that reason, the term disability or, or the Notion of disability never happens in a, in a vacuum. In our thinking, it is always within the context of a specific behavior, within the specific context of a social environment, and it is distinct from the notion of impairment, which follows a medical model, and and it has its roots also in medical diagnostics, where it's defined by failure to perform at a preconceived or expected level in a certain domain or, or absence of a limb. So it, the term impairment in its essence is prioritizing kind of what's missing, right? What is, what is not there or what is not meeting expected standards. And, and it's a term that imposes a certain kind of standard as if that standard really exists, to be honest.
0: Yeah, that completely makes sense. So when we think about impairment from a medical model, it is kind almost presuming that it's happening in a vacuum, whereas disability is presuming that it is in in the larger social construct. Am I yes, understanding yes,
1: that? Yes, exactly. I mean, I think in American culture too, we are such a work-oriented culture and we are such a performance-oriented culture that it becomes easy to fall behind. Um, it's, it becomes easy to feel like anyone is not meeting certain expectations. So I do think that, that probably contributed to the emergence of the impairment model earlier on. But as we see now, any individual provided the right support and the right environment is able to thrive, thrive in a way where they find meaning in life, thrive in a way where they are able to have meaningful employment, or beyond meaningful, just very satisfactory employment, they can have great relationships and then they can meet their life goals. And it's more of a mismatch between what we can provide as a community and what the individual has uh, and is able to bring to the table.
0: Yes, that totally makes sense. I know there are some other terms like you know special needs or differently abled Could you speak to those at all? I I, I know that you can't speak comprehensively for for all people with disabilities, but what have you learned and how using language and the proper language around a disabled person can impact their mental
1: health? You're right. I I, I agree that the language around this issue evolves and, and like anything Languages are dynamic structures um, and and the political environment, the social environment affects the words we use. Different terms, like using able-bodied versus not able-bodied or or special needs, they've had their role and purpose in the past and and I think they are terms that were a product of a a big move in, in, in civil rights and social rights special needs, I think, especially in pediatric psychology still corresponds to a certain um, procedure, right, Um, in in kind of hooking up students with different programs that meet their academic support requirements. That said, I think what you're hinting at makes me think, yes, in a culture where we are obsessed with political correctness, what is the right thing to say? And sometimes sugarcoating or not saying the word even disability as if it's something to be afraid of, does backfire. Because at that moment, anyone with a disability can feel like they're still not being seen, they're not being heard, because if one cannot even pronounce the word disability, how can then one begin to tackle issues of disability, right? If if you don't even acknowledge that it exists, if you don't even acknowledge that it's the product of the person and the environment, how can we then address the problems that exist in our society? Um, So I I do think there are benefits of calling an ace an ace. Um, That said, I also feel like language is a dynamic thing. And then sometimes different words do come up because they are trying to achieve different goals um, in in our advocacy efforts.
0: Thank you for for speaking to that. I, I think that, you know, that seems to go hand in hand with are different models of of thinking and uh, including the entire social structure surrounding a person uh, rather than maybe tiptoeing around a person and their disability. Yeah.
1: um, Unfortunately in in our culture here, the only thing we are allowed to do is be inspired by people of disability, right? The, The only common narrative that we are fed is, um, all the inspirational stories of of all the um, displays of resilience. And there is now a certain kind of pushback, even within the disabled community, uh, of them being tired of just, again, being seen in this very single-dimensional, reductionist way.
0: Right. And I want to push a little deeper into... Disability as as an identity, I know that there are so many different types of disabilities. Uh, There's you know the visible ones, invisible ones, born with, uh, developing later in life. How um, have you seen in your work? How do the different types of disabilities impact a person's mental health and and their relationship to that disability? And have you seen differences in in those different categories?
1: In our previous work, looking at some of the um, different socioeconomic and social and and historical factors that that define disability and contribute to people's outcomes, our research um, indicated in the past that many things contribute to outcomes. And in current times, many individuals um, who have physical or mental health disabilities unfortunately, do not just live in isolation with just that disability. Because of the lack of social support, people with mental health problems or or physical disabilities usually end up having employment problems. And in the US, employment problems are very directly connected to stable housing. They are very directly connected to health insurance. So it very directly affects your health. And in that context, our findings were showing, we we had a um, paper with my group at NYU back in the day looking at hospital outcomes for rehabilitation stays. And it looked like individuals who had a disability and other vulnerabilities due to socioeconomic factors were indeed staying shorter in hospitals and making smaller gains. So in that sense, I think what we were finding is kind of common sense, and, and it speaks to the notion of double jeopardy that we speak of um, usually uh, when we're talking about different intersectional identities and, and disability topics. If individuals have a disability and an additional risk factor, an additional challenge factor in life, and it is very common to have those, unfortunately, their outcomes are affected even more. They are not going to get their... Right level of health services, they're not going to find the right levels of employment, they're not going to be able to um, have stable housing, and, and things are then going to kind of get in a vicious cycle of sorts. In terms of the different disabilities I work with, one of the remarkable realizations I had was also how difficult it is to have invisible disabilities. As a part of my training, I did work with some individuals who had spinal cord injury or experienced amputations due to health problems, and, and were adjusting to um, living with a wheelchair or, or some kind of a mobility device. And, and there are a lot of issues that come with that as well. It's, it's a big adjustment process. That said, just because it was a, there was a physical display of disability, it looked like that physical display allowed a space for that person to change. Like as that person needed to form a new identity and as they got ready for it, the environment could also see it and kind of make room for it. And and from that kind of environmental definition of disability, that was a good thing. The person and the environment could move in the same direction because we're such a visual culture. If you see the disability, people do physically stand back yes. and observe, yes. right? And change the way they yes. react to it. But when dealing with, for example, um, seizure disorders, when dealing with traumatic brain injury with chronic effects, when dealing with a lot of chronic disease that affect a lot of women, and, and usually, unfortunately, in case of many immune diseases, these diseases also get denied by the medical system, which is very male heavy, mm. um, if I may mm. say it that way, um, sure, yeah. in, in, in those circumstances I think there is a, a great disadvantage of the individual sometimes being ready for change, sometimes being ready to move with acceptance and, and move towards accepting their whole new identity and making a new life. But because the environment is not aware, because the environment is not getting the visual cues, The environment is not accommodating. The environment is not helping the person. Um, And and in that, I think that discord then actually makes that disability worse because it's that kind of collaboration we're looking for between the person and the environment when we're trying to eliminate the negative consequences of disability. And in the cases of invisible disabilities, that is very hard to make. So I work with a lot of patients who feel like They are struggling emotionally because they are always feeling like they are not being true to themselves. They feel a lot of stigma because when people look at them, they assume a certain level of function and they have the choice of either making a disclosure and kind of opt out of whatever was assumed, or if they don't feel comfortable, they have to kind of go with it which then becomes problematic because if they, they have stigma, if they feel like it's also not going to be a self-serving thing, many of them choose to not make a disclosure. But then they might face tasks and performance expectations that, they're, that are not realistic for the person's level of functioning. And then it, it creates its own problems. In that sense, then, a lot of the work that I do also works with these invisible disabilities. And I try to help individuals come to an understanding of who they are cognitively, emotionally. In some cases of brain injury, you'll literally become a new person. You might even develop new likes and dislikes, right? And we sit together and try to understand those limits. But we also try to sit together and understand what it means to make that disclosure, what it means to pick and choose what we disclose, whom we disclose to, what are the benefits and gains at each time, and what are the benefits of vulnerability, right? Um, a certain form of social connection and sincerity, I guess, which which they do crave. Well, that was a long-winded answer to your question.
0: <laughs> it was a big question, and you did a fantastic job answering it. I wow, I have I have a lot of of thoughts, and I am just imagining now. You're you're just helping me in a practice of empathy and thinking about I had not given enough thought to this invisible disability and I see that there is advocacy needed for all um people with disabilities but you know with an invisible disability you can often be the sole advocate because you are not like you said the the environment is not primed for you to have a disability in their context, which I I can't imagine how that would impact, like you're talking about their, their mental health and their adjustment. Can you talk a little bit more about the population of people who develop a disability later in life and um, that I know we've been talking a bit about this inhabiting of a new identity. Can you just talk a little bit more about that and what that impact has on on their mental health and sense of identity?
1: Of course. As you said, it is a little bit of a different process um, being born with certain mental health or physical health problems through the developmental trajectory might teach people different coping skills even by the time they reach young adulthood but in if an individual experiences life in any way this 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 can be independent even of the disability kind of perspective but if we experience life for many decades a certain way and then there is a traumatic event or a big change then all of a sudden we are no longer able to live our life the same way it gets to be very very stressful and um, and it is a, it usually comes with big changes in our mood and anxiety levels. There is a huge part of this that's also dealing with the grief, as in one way we are also losing our old self. And, um, and I think one of the bigger questions that we deal with in these later life changes is what we call trauma-informed care. And, and a big part of that is also dealing with the grief and, and making sense of that loss. Because the person inhabited a certain type of body, a certain kind of mind for many years and probably even had achievements, probably even had relationships. I mean, I, I work with people whose marriages no longer made sense. I made, work with people who had degrees but after a brain injury, it was not even relevant. Like they had the paper, a diploma, right? Of of things they have learned, but they couldn't feel like they could go back and perform those duties that was represented by a diploma. So all of a sudden, many things, even things that were at a contractual level that were related to your old person become void. And here they are, these individuals now standing at the precipice of looking at a new life And it's very hard to imagine how you're going to make it in that new life because they have certain skills, certain coping mechanisms they learned in their old life, and, and they now feel like it might not work in their new life. And it's very hard then to have the motivation to have the positive outlook, to have the right mood, and to have the right relaxed way of thinking that facilitates better adjustment. So in in those cases, we do spend a lot of time with the grief and and in building the trauma narrative and and building a certain level of acceptance with it so that individuals can kind of part ways and find closure in that self that they lost. And then we also slowly build towards that new person that they're becoming. And, And spending time just like a child through trial and error right Um, stumbling here and there understanding what that new person likes what that new person wants to do what expectations are feasible in the shorter run what expectations are feasible for the longer run for that new person and then making sense of this new life that awaits them and orienting towards the possibilities for joy towards possibilities for satisfaction towards possibilities of enjoyment even in their new life
0: Wow. I love the way that you're talking about grief and resetting expectations. I, I think holding that tension of of the grief of who you knew yourself to be and setting the possibilities for what lies ahead and that process just, gosh, it just, it it feels like it just lives in this tension of of life that I think we, you know, we can all relate to and and micro ways of of experiencing grief of a lost relationship or loved one and then moving towards what could the future hold. And then you're just at such an acute level. These people are experiencing that and you're experiencing that in your work of of identity. And I'm just thankful that you are there for these people and in their time of Adjustment.
1: What you're saying also made me realize perhaps there is even a possibility that what we experienced in the past year has been traumatic for all of us as well. Because when I don't know what your personal experiences are, I might have to hear a little. The past year has been similarly traumatic for a lot of people. The sense of loss we all feel for our past life, our, our efforts to really identify what lies ahead for all of us. What the limits of this new life will be. It does suggest that maybe what we experience is in a way a collective trauma partly because the way we lived our past year had a lot of limitations and losing access to a lot of things even individuals with their perfect health and all their limbs got to experience a little what it feels like to live a very limited life and I do wonder if Some of the things we just discussed about kind of looking towards a new life is even relevant for a lot of people who are now coming to terms with the COVID nineteen pandemic.
0: Absolutely, I I think that there's so much that we're grieving and that we are anticipating, and even as we're in this very bizarre tension of things opening and uh, having to reorient ourselves to what is normalcy again. That is such a great connection to draw. And I know that we also were thinking about this, a disability advocate um, who referred to COVID-19 as a mass disabling event. And as you're kind of talking about as well, disability rates are also increasing. And what does that mean? And why does it it matter? And um, can you just talk a little bit more about your perspective on that?
1: Of course, I mean, at that point, I think it also becomes a bit of a personal perspective. So I do want to kind of put that out there because I'm also, at the end of the day, a person who is also going through this pandemic. I am not surprised, of course, that disability rates are rising because of that shift, right, between the individual and the environment. In the in the old times, for Whatever part of it was stagnant, for whatever part there was a fit between a person and the environment, it no longer is there because the environment shifted. It's a whole new environment and it will take a while right, for that kind of fit, for the pieces to kind of move around and for that fit to happen again. And I think there will be a a transient aspect to this increase and, and then we'll also then see the more permanent, more longer term outcomes as well. A lot of the disability that I seem to see in my work in the past few months is interestingly also cognitive in the sense that I think a lot of the people are finding themselves losing their attentional capabilities and and they're wondering, why am I not able to do things that I used to do? And and I think this then mimics everything we kind of discussed so far. Did they find them that they are now living a pretty similar life to what they used to have, but but it just all feels foreign. They feel like they're not able to meet their work responsibilities. They feel like they're no longer able to meet their role responsibilities as a mother, as a father, as a parent, as a caregiver, um, even as a child attending to school. And as a result of feeling overwhelmed for a long time and perhaps also as a result of that shift in perspective that we all now have. We all now realize that maybe we're a bit more fragile, that maybe that life is more fragile than what we thought it was a few years back. After half a million people died in this country, I think a lot of us are realizing that, oh wow, maybe this is it, maybe all those things that I postponed, maybe I better get to that bucket list faster. And when we have that kind of meaning-making involved in in this phase in the pandemic, perhaps then it's hard to attend to daily tasks, the menial tasks, because those tasks represent the old life. Those tasks represent things whose meaning we perhaps are now questioning. So I do think that some of the tools we discussed that apply to disability work will be applicable in in dealing with individuals who are surviving this pandemic.
0: That's so fascinating. I, I think... You know, I don't mean to to draw a, a direct comparison of what we are all experiencing collectively to what somebody who experiences something like a traumatic brain injury or uh, something completely life altering would experience, but I think it's very helpful and just draws out some some empathetic tendencies to kind of draw those conclusions and, and draw those comparisons because we do have to acknowledge that this is an unprecedented um, event that we never would have imagined kind of upended any sense of control that we once thought we had. <laughs> um, and I'm curious as you see it in such an acute uh, setting with people who suffer something that is completely life altering and that you know particularly I know your work in in neuropsychology and dealing with neurological diseases and particularly brain injuries and those changing a person's personality and I know we've talked about it a bit but well I guess I have two questions here what you believe is is kind of fixed in in us and what and what can change and do you find that these people um who experience an event like this much like you know on a much more severe level than than what many of us are collectively experiencing it's almost a point of no return, for lack of a better way to say it, where it forces you to be confronted with life's fragility. And there's this kind of, like you said, a meaning-making and moving forward, knowing that life is is fragile in a way that maybe we didn't once know. Um, do you find that in these patients that you work with?
1: Most great questions. Even though I work with a lot of patients in that domain, I again also want to point out that you could talk to many clinicians in this domain and find similarly fascinating stories. So I do want to point out that I'm in no ways unique and, and I want to be kind of humble about also um, my role in this field. With that caveat, I think so far what I've experienced is uh, in cases of more bodily injury where our, our brain is intact, even though the body is changing, Whatever was making that person, right, the personality drive, if the person was achievement-oriented before, they still are pretty achievement-oriented. So a lot of those things stay pretty much the same. That said, if the person already had some emotional turmoil, if there were attachment issues, if there were adjustment issues, if the person already had some deficits in dealing with stress in healthy ways, if there was substance use those kind of vulnerabilities usually get uncovered and emphasized when a, a bodily injury or bodily disability is introduced to the system uh, because it's a big stressor and, and in the face of new stress what do we do we we usually kind of regress to that old self and and do things the way we know how to do it on the flip side with brain injury it's more like all bets are off so um Our our brain is a very complex mechanism. There are parts of it that deal with slightly more isolated functions, like our occipital lobes have more to do with the visual system and our visual perception, and our temporal lobes and and slightly deeper structures like the hippocampus are involved in memory and, and how we remember things. Our frontal lobes are also involved in remembering things, but they really have a lot to do with motivation, decision making, and and our choices and and the way we do things in our day-to-day life. So depending on what part of the brain is impacted, we might see some very circumscribed deficits, some very specific changes in people's behavior that could be a new inability to do the math that they used to be able to do so easily. It could be an inability to find their way when they're driving, and even though they were a great driver before, it could be a difficulty to remember people's names, or, or it could be a difficulty finding the right words when they're speaking. But in other cases where the damage or the anatomical physical injury is wider spread, there are people who develop a whole new way to exist sometimes their religious views change their taste in music their taste in even the food they enjoy might change if they were more social before maybe they become a bit more reserved so even aspects of personality that we think are fixed when it comes to a brain injury they they are still at jeopardy Um, and and i've seen those change as well but i think the bigger point to make here is to note that as a silver lining, I think the field of neuropsychology and field of clinical psychology and psychotherapy, we are equipped to work with these, right? If, if we find the right individuals, we are we are able to understand the needs of the individual, what their cognitive emotional needs. And I think that emphasis on person-centered care, if we really pay attention to the person, if we really pay attention to who they are, what their environment is, and and what are the domains in which they feel comfortable and not comfortable in art, we are able to help. And and, and there are sometimes tools that allow them to learn new things, no matter what happens. I I don't want to say no matter what happens, but in many, many cases, the ability to learn a certain thing is preserved. Granted, in, in cases of very severe brain injury, memory function and new learning is impaired. But if you put those aside in in other type of brain injuries that are not as severe, the brain is able to learn a few things that are very much like rote learning, like old school learning. And even in the case of more severe injuries, there are behaviors and physical, literally, routines one can still learn. And in those cases, we work in more routinizing certain kind of behaviors like note-taking or writing things down so that the person feels equipped. To deal with the new cognitive
0: health. Thank you. That's very helpful to understand better and to know that bringing, infusing a lot of hope and what what the future can hold for for people who suffer a something that causes disability in their life. And I'm just really thankful for the work that you're doing. We've touched on this a bit when we were talking about language and. And America's focus on on work and how that is so tied to to all other things and and facets of life, and I'm wondering, and just how we talk about ableism in America, and can you just speak a little bit to the ways that that ableist culture affects the mental health of of disabled people, and what you also spoke earlier on this kind of idea of what information to disclose and and vulnerability and how people with disabilities are faced with this this crossroads of do i disclose my disability or do i try to function in an ableist culture that um, maybe doesn't make space for me can you talk a bit more to that
1: the culture in the US and and especially the work culture is pretty achievement oriented. I think when we look at even the work hours per week um, across the globe, we find that in the US, the work hours are on the longer side of things. And it it looks like as a result, and because also we, we don't really have the right social structures in place, that people need usually a job to get health insurance, that they need a job to find stable housing, that they need stable housing then to provide education or food for their children, right? Um, Because so many things are contingent on a job, I think that really contributes to the ableist culture in the sense that unless we perform at work, unless we add value to society through work, it, it looks like our worth as an individual is questioned and challenged. And as you pointed out, you know, this, this ableist emphasis usually requires people to be able-bodied. It requires people to be able-minded. And people are expected to perform at their best regardless of what happens, right? This is a culture that takes pride in not taking their vacation days. This is a culture that takes pride in going to work even when they are sick, which probably spreads COVID-19 these days, but, but now people are home, right? <laughs> right, <But> th-
0: right. <laughs> this is a
1: culture that where parenting is made to be almost like a catastrophe from the corporate perspective. And instead of providing the right scaffolds to support young parents, this is a culture that gives minimal parental leave to the parents of a newborn. And similarly, this is a culture where if you're taking a sick day, it's, it's frowned upon, and if you take too many, people start questioning, or oh, is my boss gonna be upset with me, even though there might be health needs for those sick days. And I think, unfortunately, individuals with disabilities have to really also end up functioning in this grind in a way where they manage then multiple things all at the same time. They, what, a, what a person with an able body and no mental health problems do, Individuals with disabilities do that and then usually manage one or two complex health disorders concurrently. It involves managing medical appointments. It involves managing insurance companies. It involves filling out many forms on a monthly basis. It involves managing their finances. It involves managing their vacation days, surgical dates, checkup dates, all the information. And there is very little comfort zone we create in meeting our own health needs, unfortunately, in in this work culture, right? Um, And instead of rewarding individuals for being, I'm I'm going to use the simple term, adults, right, grown-ups, uh, right, in in meeting their own health needs, we, we frown upon it. If they take time to go to their doctor for preventive care, that's not something we like in this country too much. And... As a result, individuals with disabilities end up feeling a lot of frustration and and a lot of helplessness in many of the environments they function. And I think one of the contributors to that feeling is also the feeling that their experience of disability gets questioned day after day. I would also find very, very frustrating, they live their life a certain way, yet To be given, for example, extra days to tend to their disease or or sickness, they have to prove their disability to a a body of governance. They have to work with a government structure. They have to work with a corporate structure, provide the right forms. And everything that they live with from the get-go, it automatically becomes denied, and they have to keep proving day after day what their daily experience is. And if they don't do that, like we entirely put the burden on them. If they don't do that, we are happy to just ignore the whole thing, right? Because that's usually how we deal with it. For that reason, then that whole disclosure is such a delicate issue. There is no right answer. Um, And it's very context dependent. The way I work with it with my patients is, is by helping them explore the context what is it that they want to get out of by disclosing what are the safeties they have if they make that disclosure for a lot of the patients with epilepsy there's always also a question of safety because with disclosure we are also then able to get the right kind of help and and emergency help available so we kind of go over that it is something that is very unique to the individual And it's almost akin to a coming out experience. And in my discussions, I do actually borrow a lot from kind of queer literature and LGBTQ ideas in discussing these as well, because it requires the individual to reach a point in their existence in which they then now refuse to function in the way these power structures expect them to. And then they need to be able to say, hey, I understand your expectations but stop. This is me. Let me explain what me is and, and let's move forward from there. So in, in a similar way, I think there's a lot of overlap and a lot of um, dialogue that can happen within that framework as well.
0: Thank you so much for sharing about that in such a delicate and sensitive way and really appreciate that any closing thoughts that that you have i know we we touched on a lot if there's anything you you feel like we didn't get to touch
1: on thank you so much for giving me this wonderful opportunity um, as, as you can see it, it's it's a loaded topic and and we could all talk about it for uh, many many more minutes but i think one thing that i really want to share in, in this setting is that i do really believe in the power of community and, and the power of relying on mentors, relying on health care support, relying on mental health support. Um, and, and, and there is help available. And this doesn't have to be a very solitary journey for anyone questioning how much they should disclose, what they should say, how they should deal with their chronic disorders. And I, I'm, as a provider, I do actually believe. The problems really lie with the system, we really have the the history of the structures we created really go back to times of the industrial revolution and they really um, are centered around individual productivity of a certain sort. That is no longer even consistent with the digital age we live in. So there is actually so much more room, so much more flexibility and creative thinking we can do. and just. Thrive as productive members of a society in this digital age and also just be without needing to produce. Be without needing to perform and, and just be for who we are.
0: That's a great thing to to end on and I, I could talk to you for many more hours about this and I am so thankful for your time and Thank you so much for for doing this today.
1: Really appreciate your time as well. Thank you for hosting me.
0: This episode was produced by Dave Emmert. Self-Studies is a podcast by Alma, a company dedicated to simplifying access to high-quality in-network mental health care for both consumers and clinicians. To learn more, visit helloalma.com.